It's the chance to experience these things with the people of God together. And, and she's a good example of a member of the body of Christ that we get to enjoy those things with. Well, today we are celebrating Palm Sunday together. Today we're, we're here at this point in our, our church calendar year where we celebrate that, that day where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in what we, uh, what we oftentimes call the triumphal entry. And as we draw close to our passage there may be some questions on our mind. There, there, this, is, this is an opportunity for us to pay attention to what's going on so that we don't become uh, the, those people who are like the fans at a hockey game waving the foam finger, not really sure what the significance of that foam finger is. We become people who, when we raise those palm branches, when we shout Hosanna, the, the fullness of the meaning of those things ring true in our hearts. Because the reality is that day that, that those people gathered together to celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, there was a bit of confusion in their hearts and minds. There was a, a bit of surprise. Tomorrow, by the way, is, uh, is April 15th. It's, it's tax day. And so for many of you, you have had the experience of, of, of a pleasant surprise of getting uh, money back. You've overpaid your taxes, and so you get money back. It's a pleasant surprise. But for some of you, there's that unpleasant surprise of owing money to the, the government, which is not fun for anyone, and it's a very unpleasant surprise. See, I think as we approach this text this morning, uh, one thing is true. Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphant. But in the hearts and minds of the people there gathered, they were in for an unpleasant surprise because their expectations didn't line up with the kind of victorious king that Jesus really was. So as we draw near to the text, I want to encourage us to consider what our expectations are of Jesus as well. And, and as we do that, I'm going I'm to actually ask us, we're going we're gonna to read our text from John chapter 12. We're, we're still in John chapter, or the book of John, by the way, but here's some good news. We're not in John chapter 1 anymore. Well, we'll go back to that. But Today, we're not in John chapter 1, so I'm going to invite us. I'd like us to stand, but before you do, again, just a reminder. When, we, when I invite us to stand for the Word of God, it's this, this invitation for us to stand before the Word of God with expectation that His Word is true and that the promises that we find in the Scriptures not only have been fulfilled but will be fulfilled. And so when we stand, it, it, it's almost like we're, we're leaning in in worship. We're, we're leaning in with our hearts and our minds, saying, God, may, may your word be true in my heart and in my mind and my life today. So if you would, would you mind standing as I read for us this morning from John chapter 12, our text this morning that we'll be spending some time in. John records this for us in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus, Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that this is not some two-dimensional 
text from a class, but this is your word, living and active, alive and true. Lord, in a world where truth has, has kind of eroded and, and become uh, personal, and, and, and yet, Lord, your word is foundational. It's eternal. And so we thank you that, that we stand before your word, Lord, and ask you to reveal your truth, your, your word to us in such a way that it, it takes root in our lives and transforms us. This morning, may we see Jesus as the triumphant king that he is. As we turn to your text, we pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we, as we jump into our passage this morning, I understand that this is a passage that, if you've grown up in the church, it's a familiar passage, at least. It's a story that you, you were taught coming to church every year as we approached Easter, the, the week before Resurrection Sunday, as, as Celine pointed out to us. And, and it's a day that we celebrate a moment in the life of Jesus and a, a time that was celebrated by the people of God every year. It's a, it's, a, it's a Passover celebration that Jesus and his disciples are, are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate. And, and many, many people would gather together every year in Jerusalem to celebrate this. One historian named Josephus, he estimates that there was a crowd around two and a half million people gathered there in Jerusalem. Now, um, there's a number of other historians that... that kind of attribute that to being a little bit of an exaggeration for literary sake, but, but still, whether it's two and a half million or uh, a few hundred thousand people in Jerusalem, that's a big number. That's a very big number, a, a huge crowd. I wonder if you've ever watched the Olympics on, on TV, if you ever consider how a city gets ready to host the Olympics, whether it's the Summer Olympics or the Winter Olympics, and when, when the event comes, uh, the, the city is, is infused with crowds, new vendors, people looking for housing. It's just crowds and crowds and crowds of people for the, for the duration of the Olympics. And then when the Olympics are over, it's like a ghost town, right? Jerusalem may not have been a ghost town afterwards, but there's certainly a surge of people that travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together as the people of God. Now, the Passover was a feast that remembers this moment in Israel's history when God literally passed over the houses of the people of Egypt in judgment. You remember when they were enslaved in Egypt, uh, the, the people of God were, were crying out for, for rescue, and, and God rescued them through Moses, but, but not right away, because uh, Pharaoh would not be convinced that he should let God's people go. And so through a series of plagues, God convinces Pharaoh, or, or uh, you know, kind of forces Pharaoh's hand to, to let his people go. And the last plague was the plague of death. Uh, the plague where the angel of the Lord would pass over the houses of Egypt and, and, and bring judgment on those houses of Egypt, and the firstborn son of every household would die, but not for God's people, because God had made a plan for them. He had given them a way where they might sacrifice an unblemished lamb and, and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes, the lintels of their, their homes. And so when the angel Lord passes over, he would know that that house has been set apart for God's people, and he would pass over in judgment. 
See, this is a, this is a big moment for the, for the people of Israel. This is probably the most momentous act of intervention that God has had on the people of Israel. And they gather every year to celebrate this Passover feast, a time to remember not just when God passed over their houses in judgment, but where he rescued them and redeemed them out of Israel, where they were able to, to go quickly and leave their homes and, 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 and um, head out of slavery into the wilderness. And so... This was probably a very significant time in the life of Israel, certainly for Jesus and his disciples and the people gathered together in Jerusalem. And so here in John chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling to Jerusalem to join in this Passover celebration, this week-long celebration of God's gracious redemption. And as Jesus approaches the city, as he approaches this the, the Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, we're, we're given the indication that maybe there's a little bit of confusion as to what's going on, as to, to what to expect as to Jesus' arrival. We're, we, we read in John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, the disciples, they were experiencing this alongside Jesus. But, but the, thing, the, the pieces of the puzzle didn't really fit together until later on, until after Jesus had risen from the grave and had been glorified, did they realize, oh, wait a minute, that's right, he said this would happen. He said that this was to fulfill scriptures. He, he did this for a reason, right? The, the people of Israel gathered to celebrate Jesus. They they're, they're, they're in this uh, kind of this swell of excitement that, that Jesus is arriving. They've heard that he was coming. People have heard that this, this, this man from Nazareth uh, that heals people and, and raises people from the dead is coming. And so there, there's this swell of excitement. But the excitement is a little bit misguided until later on. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been in a situation where all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's what that meant? You get a note, and you're like, oh, that's nice. And then it's not until later on that you realize, oh, that's what they meant. I had that experience this past week, actually. I was invited to Fairfield Woods Middle School to preview. My older child is at that age of where they're teaching on puberty in school. And so I got to go to the middle school, but Tara was lucky enough. She got to stay home. She One of our kids was sick, so she stayed home with our kids, and and I'm feeling as uncomfortable as possible in this meeting, so I'm texting her throughout the night saying, hey, they're saying this, they're saying that. And at one point she says, hey, Dan, you know, our oldest son, Alex, has the iPad right now. He's playing a game on it. And I'm like, okay, well, it doesn't really make sense to me. And so the, the evening is done, and I'm driving home, and it clicks. The puzzle pieces fall into place. Did you know that if your iPad is connected to your phone, the text message exchange goes, is displayed on the, the iPad? <laughs> Yeah, I learned that this week. And, and, and you know what? Hey, that, that's, one way, that's one way not to give the talk to your child, by the way. But, <laughs> but it was that moment when I'm driving in the car, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Now it makes sense why she was telling me that Alex has the iPad, right? It, it, it happens where you understand things later on, and man, wouldn't it have been nice to understand that when it was happening, Right? I think for the disciples, man, wouldn't it have been awesome for them if they understood what was happening here with Jesus, clearly understood the significance of the moment, the value of this moment, and just could live what, I'm trying to think of what the Latin verb, like seize the day, what's the Latin word? Anyway, 
Yes, carpe diem, thank you. And, and it's that. It's like, why can't they just seize the day, right? Well, they can't seize the day because their expectations are a little bit off. They're, they're a little bit confused as to, to what's happening, what's, what's going on here. But, but the reality is that something very special is happening. And though they may not have understood it fully until later on, that doesn't have to be true for you and I. That, that every time we gather for, for Palm Sunday, we too can approach this moment and understand it as an opportunity to celebrate our King. The King we rightly understand as our Savior, our Messiah, has come. And that can give us great celebration for us. And so as we read our passage this morning, let's, let's notice the meaning together that we might not misunderstand what kind of King we have. Specifically, I'd like us to pay close attention to the expectations of, uh, of the people there in Jerusalem because, because I think as we look at their expectations, we can understand where they may have gone astray, where, where any of us would have gone astray, right? Look at John chapter 12, verses 12 to 13 with me for a moment. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now see, there's no doubt that the crowd that has gathered to to celebrate Jesus saw Jesus as a king. They certainly saw him as some sort of royalty, maybe not the kind of king that he intended to be, that he was going to be. We have to ask the question, what kind of king did they expect? Well, I think that their actions lead us to believe that they expected the kind of king where he would enter into the city and and conquer their oppressors. He would be a conquering king. He would be this victorious, battle-like king who who would defeat their enemies. They uh, were told that they waved palm branches as he entered. And so I wanted to actually bring this in. This This is a sapling of a palm tree which I never knew that this is what it looked like until uh, our children's ministry director and my wife were, were separating them for Palm Sunday this, this past week. And, and, and so they would gather and wave these palm branches, and I'm opening this up for a reason, or trying to open it up for a reason. They would wave these palm branches as a sign, as a symbol. Now, here's the thing. When you gather for the Passover, right, because there's this influx of crowds of people, there was a housing issue. They ran out of housing. And so people would actually, they would build huts out of these palm branches. They'd bring them with them and build huts out of these palm branches. Oops. Where they would actually be able to stay in like tents, right? They would, they would be able to set them up and, and I couldn't, I won't do it for you right now, but they could, they could live in them like tents. And, and so they had them available to them. They were also used in worship at Passover. They would take the palm branches and wrap them around these, these strands of other flowers and wave them in their worship services around the Passover feast and celebration. But here's the thing. I, I think even more so, it's not so much that they had them where they made tents at Passover or they used them in their worship. I think what we need to pay attention to here is the symbolism of waving palm branches goes back centuries before. When Judas Maccabeus entered into Jerusalem, and he entered into the, 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 sa- the well, not the Savior as we would understand it, but this, this um, conquering leader who would defeat Jerusalem, or defeat the Israelites' oppressors. And so when he entered into the city on his horse, they waved palm branches symbolizing, he will bring us victory, right? And so after that, when a victorious leader would enter into a city, they would wave palm branches almost as if they were saying, hey... Uh, the victory is complete. We, we have been saved. 
we have our king. We have our conqueror. Not just their actions, though, but also their words lead us to think that they weren't thinking of Jesus as a humble king, but as a conquering king. They declare, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. By the way, Hosanna means, Lord, please save us. It's like this emphasized way of saying, Lord, save us, right? It's, it's, like, a, it's like underlined, boldened, big letters, Lord, please save us, please crying out, like crying out for the Lord's help. But this blessing that they cry out is, an Old Test, is from an Old Testament passage. It's a piece of scripture which was actually part of a song that was sung at the Passover. In fact, if you open your Bibles and look uh, to Psalm 1, I think it's around 112, 114 to 118, this was a, a string of songs that they would sing at Passover together. And here in Psalm 118 is, is part of that song that they declared as Jesus entered the city. It's, it's a song that was familiar to everyone. And so when they started singing it, everyone joined in. I don't know if you've ever been to a baseball game. I, Tar and I used to live in the Boston area, so we'd gone to a few Red Sox games. And the funny thing is when you go to a Red Sox game in the eighth inning or in between the eighth inning and the seventh and eighth inning, they play Sweet Caroline, right? And, and quickly the whole, uh, the whole stadium erupts in singing the song together. Everyone knows a song, you jump in, you join in, and it's this beautiful chorus, right? This fun time. Well, it's true here that the the people of Israel would have known these words. They would have been familiar with it and joined in because this was part of a song they sang every year when they gathered for the Passover. We're told in Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. That's the Hosanna piece. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of Israel. See, the king that Israel longed for, the king that that Israel desired was one that they expected would save them from their oppressors. He he was a king who would save them. They they sang this at, at the Passover because God saved them from not just the angel of death, but also from their slavery to Egypt. They had seen what it meant to to have a conqueror, a savior, to rescue them from slavery. And they cried out for it again every time they celebrated the Passover. God save us. And here they they sing that as, as Jesus enters into Israel. They had an expectation of a conquering king. But, but the kind of king that they thought they needed and the kind of king that God provided for them was very different. See, Israel had a long history of of longing for a king. Israel had a long history of saying, hey, we want a king. We want someone to lead us, to guide us, to to protect us, to provide for us, to care for us, to, 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 to give us a land to live in. We want that. And so as God gathered a people for himself in the people of Israel, he wanted to be their king. He, he said, I, they will be my people and I will be their king. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you would hear the, the people of Israel refer to him as my God and my king, right? That's almost like the synonymous title for them. God had been the one to, to offer them protection. He'd rescued them. He'd, he, he'd, he'd fed them in the wilderness. He, he led them to a promised land. He, he was going to be their king. But here's the thing. That wasn't enough for the people. Because once they got into the the promised land, once they were there for a while, they suddenly looked around them at the the other nations, which which they never really defeated, by the way. 
Israel stopped conquering the nations in the promised land after a while, and look what happens. They start looking at the nations around them, and then they become envious. They say, hey, you know what? We want to be like them. And so what happens is, in their desire for a king, Israel turns away from God. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, listen to these words. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, Israel turned away from God. They, they sought their contentment in, in living like the people around them, the nations around them. They desired a king, but they didn't know what was really good for them. Their, their expectation as to what would provide them contentment, security, provision was, was misguided. Their expectation was to put their hope in a human king rather than in the God of Israel. Rather than be holy and different and, and set apart as the people of God, they, they chose to turn away from him. And so if you look at Israel's history, you'd see that, that this played out in, in the way that you and I might expect, obviously, as we get to read back on history. Israel soon became a divided kingdom. They, they became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They had king after king who, who would walk away from God. I mean, the, the book of Judges is a great example of the people turning away from God, crying out for a savior, God providing a savior, and then them forgetting that and, and, and going back to turning away from God and needing a savior again, right? We are a stubborn people. We, we oftentimes think that we know best. We know better than God. Our expectation, we, sh we shape our own expectations. And you know what? We're not that far apart from what the world looked like back then. Think about the words at, at the end of Judges. I, I, I know I've had this verse before us a number of times. I just love it. I think that it's a good description of the time we're living in even now. The book of Judges tells us in chapter 21, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, as a people, we don't like sitting under the authority of a king. It doesn't feel good to many people. It feels like we should have our own rights to say what's right and what's wrong. Israel, similarly, they wanted to set their own expectations as to what kind of king they had. But the way things are left for us at the end of Judges doesn't give me much hope. It makes me feel like there's, there's just this anarchy going on. There's no truth. There's no foundation. There's no, no definition of right or wrong. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no king. And yet Israel continues to hope for a king. They, they experience their oppression. They experience the pain and, and, and the sadness of, of life apart from God. And they cry out for king over and over and over again. That's the story of the book of Judges. They want a king. They just want the kind of king that, that fits their own expectations. And what about you? What kind of king do you hope for? Is, is Jesus the kind of king who you turn to when you need him but but those other pieces are, are not really relevant to your life? Is it where you kind of say, yeah, I'd like to listen to Jesus with those parts that are easier to listen to him, but, but the really hard commandments, the really hard places where he invites me to follow him and obey him, you know what, I, I think I'm going to set that aside. That's not a king. That's not Jesus. 
That's you kind of saying there is no king in Israel, and I'm going to do what's right or what's wrong in my own eyes. That's true for me too. This is a struggle for us all, I believe, is to really wrestle with that question, what kind of, what kind of king do I want in my life? Are you hoping for a political king who's going to show your political opponents how foolish they are? Are we going to litigate Christianity in our, in our courtrooms? Are we, going to, are, are we going to formulate laws that force people to follow Christianity? Or are we going to allow our worship of the king in our hearts shape how we interact with the world around us? What kind of, what kind of king do you want? And yet Israel continued to hope for a king, a king that would rescue them, that would conquer their Roman oppressors and give them freedom from their enemies. This morning, I want to challenge us to think about what kind of king we think Jesus is. That, that when, we, when we cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when we sing these songs on Sunday morning, are, are we celebrating an idea about who Jesus is, or are we celebrating him as the king we genuinely need, we desire, we long for? The Avenger movies has been hugely popular. I don't know if you know them. Uh, certainly my uh, older kids do, and, and uh, some of the teens in the youth group, that they love Avengers movies, and actually some young adults now do too. So. Um, but it, it, it's this movie about these heroes who, who crush the evil ones. They, they fight them. They, they battle them to, to the death, and, and, and good wins out and evil loses through these movies. Is that the kind of king you want? Is that the kind of conqueror you want? See, I think that's the kind of king that the people in Israel expected. But, but listen to how Jesus responds to those expectations. Listen to, to how he responds to those expectations by offering a corrective himself. Look at verse 14 with me. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, sitting on a donkey's colt. Instead of sitting on a war horse, entering into the city, saying, here, your victor has come. The one who's going to conquer the, the, your oppressors has arrived. Don't worry, your, your, your difficult days are done. In, instead of entering into the city like that, Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm not going to enter like that. I'm gonna, I want to sit on a, a donkey. Now, let me, let me draw a picture for you a little bit. If you like to watch football, right, the, the thing that's in common at every football game is your team, when the, when the game's getting ready to start, your team comes busting out of the tunnel. They've got this loud music. The, sometimes there's like confetti or fireworks or whatever that go off. And the team runs onto the field almost as if to say, hey, game's already done. We've won just by getting on this field right now. We're victorious, right? Now imagine this. I, I know that's not necessarily true. They're, they know that there's a big game in front of them. But, now, but picture this. What if your favorite team decided this Sunday or this Sunday this fall to line up single file in, in, in the tunnel on the way out to the field, and when they announce a team, they quietly, hands, hands held, walk single file out into the field. How would that make you feel about this team that you're rooting for and cheering for? Would you feel confident that they're going to be victorious today? Or would you think, oh, maybe they haven't woken up yet, right? Maybe they're not really excited to be on this field right now. So I think that, that's what we expect when we think about a football team. We want, we want a, a game where the team comes rushing out of the tunnel. They're, they're, they're high-fiving each other. They're, they're head-butting each other with their helmets. They're chest-bumping. They're doing all these things. They're ramped up and ready to go for the game. We don't want someone to, to when they're announced, to quietly and slowly walk out very humbly, right? We think, nah, that's not really a victor. 
But, but, but here's what's going on. When, when Jesus announces that he's going to ride in on a donkey, when, 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 he, when he gets on that donkey to enter into the city, he's saying something. The, the, the people wave palm branches for a hero uh, coming in victory. But Jesus' response is to, to ride on a donkey. And this donkey, this conquering victor, is a fulfillment of Scripture depicted for us in Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet. He wrote in, in chapter 9, he wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Uh, having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, the king is coming on a, on a donkey, on the, on the colt, the, the foal of a donkey. It's a picture of humility. And what that king brings is not more war. He brings peace. He, he brings an end to war. He, he brings an end to the battle bow. He, he brings peace to the nations. The king is coming, and through him, peace would come. You see, the people gathered with palm branches, they wanted another David before Goliath. They wanted another Joshua leading them in the conquest of the land. They wanted to see Samson defeat the Philistines. But what they get is far greater. They get a Messiah. When John the Baptist was in prison before he was beheaded, he wanted reassurance about Jesus. He wanted the confidence to know that, that Jesus, who he'd proclaimed and pointed to, was actually the one who he'd hoped and thought he was. And so he writes to Jesus, and Jesus sends this response to him in Matthew chapter 11. Listen to how Jesus responds. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news Preach to them. See, God had sent Jesus, and Jesus was the kind of king who would bring an end to this rule of death. He, he, would, he would bring peace to the nations. He would, he would level the playing field. Those who were rejected by society, who were alone, had a place to belong. They had value. The, the poor had the good news preached to them. Lepers are healed. Those who are mourned are comforted. The poor are blessed. So Jesus would be the kind of king that would bring an end to sin and death. And those people standing by the roadside there in Jerusalem, they had no idea what to expect. They would be like the disciples, hopefully later on, uh, seeing the puzzle pieces fall into place and think, oh, that's what he meant. That's what he meant when he rode in on the donkey. He wasn't going to wage a war. He was going to bring peace. He was going to be the king that would bring peace through his own sacrifice. He would be that sacrificial lamb, that signal to the angel of death, the, the Lord, to pass over them in judgment. See, history has a way of repeating itself. And just as the, the nation of Israel rejected God and demanded a human king way back in 1 Samuel, so the people gathered in Jerusalem reject Jesus as king. May this not be, be not so for you and I. May we not get caught up in, in, in thinking that Jesus is a good Sunday school story, but in the process miss the beauty and the majesty of this humble king 
who though he may not enter into the arena, into the stadium with pomp and circumstance as a victorious king, he is a triumphant, victorious king as he walks in quietly, humbly, sacrificially for you and I. This week as we enter into Holy Week, as we, as we prepare to approach Resurrection Sunday, as we prepare to, to approach Good Friday, may we think on these things. May we consider the, the story of Jesus, the things he proclaimed, the kind of king that he truly was. Here's, here's what I'll, I'll encourage you to do. This week, from here in chapter 12 to chapter 20, is the story of, of Jesus' last week told through the lenses of, the, of John himself. Maybe that would be your scripture reading this week, is to focus on reading through John 12 to John 20. Pay attention to the kind of king that Jesus is. And you know what? Where you realize, when you come to realization that maybe your expectation of the kind of king that Jesus is is wrong, take a few moments. Confess that to the Lord. Confess it. Call it out in yourself. Acknowledge it. And confess it and lay it before him and understand that we have an opportunity to celebrate who the Savior really is. See, the people in Jerusalem, they shouted, Hosanna. They said, Lord, please save us. But just a few days later, they're going to cry out, crucify him. When he doesn't meet their expectations, they're going to be crying out that he will be beaten and whipped and ridiculed and mocked and crucified on the cross. They were so excited when they thought they were getting what they wanted, but when they didn't get what they wanted, when, when their expectations were not met, they quickly turned away and set him aside. May this not be so for us. So what kind of king do you worship? What kind of king do you serve this morning? One last thing. They, they, <clears throat> I, I hope and pray that, that we're not like the students at Auburn. This is, I know this is a sore subject for those of you who like college basketball, and it was a, it was, it was a rough upset when, when Virginia beat Auburn. But, but I was watching this, this news article, this news report on, on the students, and they showed this video footage of students in the closing minutes of the game running out to their, their quad, their, the kind of center of campus, celebrating, cheering on their team, excited because victory was coming. And, and when that, that penalty, or when the um, free throw was made and Virginia ended up winning, their, 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 uh, their depression, their disappointment went like that. They went from excitement about what was happening to depression and disappointment. And all of that in their expectations not being met. You know how we're going to shape our expectations about Jesus? By turning to Scripture by looking at the kind of king that he was. He may not have been the king that conquers in, in war and battle, but he will be a king that defeats evil, that brings an end to sin and death through his own sacrifice on the cross. That's the kind of king we worship. Let, let me close with these words of Paul's from Philippians chapter 2, which describes our king. This is our king. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Father, you are our Savior. Lord, you are our King. And Lord, though we don't always understand the fullness of what that is, Lord, I pray that we would, that, that we would be able to seize the day, live in the moment, and understand in our experiences, in our day-to-day walk of faith with Jesus, fully understand who he is as King. Jesus is triumphant when he enters into Jerusalem, just not in the way we expect. Help us to understand, to have right expectations to not have to struggle with being disappointed with unmet expectations in Jesus because we falsely ascribe to him things that are not of you. But Lord, help us to honestly and truthfully put our hope in the kind of king that Jesus always intended to be, the kind of king that you, that you made him to be. Humble, obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. We thank you for that, Savior, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.